The History Channel original podcast. Some presidents went to Harvard, George Washington went to war. It was the worst decision the British ever made not to treat him as an equal. That's when we see George Washington become a reluctant revolutionary. Washington, he was prepared to fight for it and die for it. He's taken on a task that he knows is going to be almost impossible. You command the army that declares war on the empire, but you better win. Because if you don't, there's no telling what's going to become of you. From the History Channel, this is Making Washington. I'm Andre DeShields. George Washington had taken command of the Continental Army at the age of 43. It was a patchwork of local militias he must wrestle into a single fighting force. Now, about a year into the war, he's preparing his still untested army to take on the Redcoats in New York. In the summer of 1776, he writes to John Hancock, I am obliged to confess my want of confidence in the troops. Till of late, I had no doubt in my own mind of defending this place, nor should I have yet, if the men would do their duty. Historian Alan Taylor says Washington is determined to create an army that can stand up to the better-trained and better-supplied British. He wants men that are disciplined enough that they fear their officers more than they fear the enemy. So Washington will have to inflict the kind of discipline that he thinks is necessary. You can paint his harshness in harsh colors and make him look to be almost tyrannical, but that's not quite fair. His commitment to discipline and to almost merciless enforcement of that discipline is justified and necessary. These guys are no match for a real professional British force. Joseph J. Ellis points out that while these tactics might sound extreme today, Washington does what he thinks he must to prepare the troops for such a formidable army. Let's take a step back here and understand how insane the notion of a war against the British was. George Washington biographer Alexis Coe. They were one of the most powerful military forces and naval forces in the world. America didn't have a navy. It had a military as of yesterday. They were underfunded. They were undermilitarized. And Washington is just trying to catch up. Central to Washington's problem is the fact that he has to seek resources from each individual colony. Historian Joanne B. Freeman says this creates just one more disadvantage for the Continental Army. Continental Congress does not have a lot of power to get money. They could request funds from the different colonies, but couldn't really demand. Washington doesn't have the funds for weapons, food, uniforms. And time is not on his side. Under orders from King George III, a vast armada of British warships is on its way to the colonies, intent on intimidating the rebels into backing down. Commanding the British forces is General William Howe. Biographer Edward G. Lengel says, in this last regard, Washington does have some luck. William Howe is a career military man with pro-American sympathies. He actually had proclaimed he would never go 
to command British troops in America because he thought the, this war was wrong-headed. He changes his mind because he's given the opportunity to be a peace commissioner as well as the commanding general. You will go and you will fight and deliver a few blows. You will be the person who negotiates a diplomatic end to this unnecessary war. That's what Howe thinks he's going to do. The British feel the need to make an example of the American rebels. Here's historian H.W. Brands. The British had this large empire, and to some degree from the British perspective, there was a principle that had to be upheld. If we let the Americans flout the authority of the British government, then who's to prevent other colonies from doing the same thing? By the summer of 1776, the two armies are poised for a showdown over New York. Author Nathaniel Philbrick says this confrontation will be crucial. New York was really the key to North America, and whoever had control of New York and the Hudson River had the potential to control whatever would happen next. Washington has been ordered by Congress to defend New York at all cost. But the entire Continental Army has just 121 cannons to counter the thousands on board the British warships that are headed their way. But while he doesn't have the firepower to compete with the British, Washington has managed to assemble a group of eager patriot officers to fight by his side. Washington was great at spotting talent. He had no qualms about going after young people who had not necessarily established a reputation if they showed promise. General Colin Powell credits this ability among Washington's particular skills. He learned the most important thing you do as a leader is develop followers and subordinate leaders who you can trust and who trust you. Among Washington's closest advisors is 34-year-old Nathaniel Green, a man from a prominent Rhode Island family who had organized a local militia. Here's White House historian Lindsay M. Chervinsky. Nathaniel Green was one of his very, very favorites. He was brilliant and super ambitious and really understood how Washington thought. Alongside Green, 25-year-old Henry Knox. He was a bookseller by trade. When Washington met him, he recognized someone who was organized, intelligent, and affable in that way you need to get things done. Henry Knox very quickly became his head of the artillery. He learned all about cannons and ammunition and everything from reading and talking to British officers about them. With the British fleet bearing down on New York, Washington calls Knox, Green, and the rest of his Council of War to his headquarters to devise a defensive strategy. Recognizing that they lacked sufficient artillery to defend all of New York Harbor, the Council proposes creating a gauntlet along the East River. Their aim? To inflict as much damage as possible to the British warships as they land. By July, the British are no longer coming. They have arrived. More than 100 warships sent by King George III appear on the horizon, making for New York Harbor. This is the largest naval and military force ever assembled in the Americas. For any sensible person looking out at that, you'd have to think, we're in a lot of trouble here. 
The next time anything like that will happen is the American force going the other way in World War I. Huge. In his general orders to the army, Washington writes, our cruel and unrelenting enemy leaves us no choice, but a brave resistance. We have therefore to resolve to conquer or die. It's true that Washington and the Americans are outgunned, but they do have a weapon that the British lack, a cause. It's an amazing coincidence that at the same time as the British are coming in to the New York Harbor, the Declaration of Independence is passed by Congress. It had taken just three weeks for an historic committee of founding fathers, including Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin, to draft the document which they hope will unite all colonists behind a common creed. When we learn about the revolution in school, it's presented as a rather clean-cut story. All of America wanted to rebel. The British were the oppressors. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth, we hold these truths to be self-evident. But it was by no means unanimous that Americans thought, okay, independence is this great thing. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Within the colonies, within families, there was division. There were loyalists and patriots living in the same house. This was a civil war. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So in towns and cities around the colonies, People were meeting in groups and debating what they thought about independence. Declaring independence was a process, not an act. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. The Declaration made a case to the people on the fence in America that this was a cause worth betting on, and it gave the Colonials, the Yankees, something to fight for besides real estate. It was almost a letter to investors. Do you want to invest in this experiment? This is what we're about. This is why we're doing it. And so they were very intentional about how they got out word. They sent it on ships to all major ports. They printed copies of it. They published it. They wanted it to spread. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed says, the Declaration is intended as a rallying cry. And it was meant to be read aloud. It has the ring of a, of a song, in a way. When you read the Declaration, most people only remember the first few paragraphs. No one else remembers that it's really a list of charges against the British king. The history of the present King of Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. The Declaration was an act of treason. It was primarily a document that was stating that the United States of America was going to be a new country. 
Jefferson lists all of the grievances that have been collected from the various colonies. So everybody is a part of it. These people could have been tried for that and, and killed for that. The American colonists and the British government could have met halfway before July of 1776. But once independence is declared, there is a kind of Rubicon that is passed. Defeating the British seemed like an insurmountable task. The founders hoped that rallying the colonies behind a single cause might give this would-be nation the momentum it needs to prevail. But the British do not respond gently to the declaration. On July 12th, Two British ships attack New York City. Washington's cannons can do nothing to repel them. Howe doesn't want to destroy Washington or the Continental Army. Howe wants to rough them up, make them realize they can't win, make them decide on their own that this was a misguided venture. In the days that follow his show of force, General Howe makes two attempts to get Washington to concede offering him a pardon for his role in leading the rebellion against the king. General Howe sends an emissary, and he sends one letter. It's addressed informally, Mr. Washington. He sends another letter, again informally, George Washington, Esquire, etc. Washington won't accept the letter because he's General Washington. That's his title. You want to address him, you address him as General Washington. And if you're not going to address him that way, he's not going to engage in that conversation. Despite Washington's repeated rebuffs, Howe persists. He sends his own staff officer with a third offer for the rebel commander. Still, Washington refuses to accept the letter which addresses him as anything other than general. Washington was very aware of the fact that respect for him was respect for the army, was respect for America. He was establishing protocols not just for himself, but for his army and for his nation. In this situation, he is beyond brave, he's resolute. The British response is to redouble its efforts. Within weeks, the King's fleet numbers 400 warships carrying 32,000 soldiers. It is a fighting force more than twice the size of Washington's own. Not knowing where Howe will strike, his only solution is to divide his forces and to hope to meet the British wherever they land. Washington needs to maintain significant forces on Manhattan as well to establish a defensive line on Gowanus Heights on Long Island. Washington's a little overconfident given what he's up against. He's not looking out there and saying, I'm about to lose and, and this is suicide. He's thinking, I'll think of something. Uh, we'll work this out. August 29, 1776. British forces land on western Long Island and attack the Continental troops. Washington has wanted to prove his American army strength since the start of the war. But the encounter with the British on Long Island makes clear that despite Washington's training and preparations, the Continental Army is no match for the Empire. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Washington was completely out general in the Battle of Long Island. He did not organize his army sufficiently. He divided it. The name of the game is to never fight unless you have superior numbers or superior terrain. And here, in the first major battle, he's making the blunder. Washington loses nearly one-fifth of his men in two days of fighting. Now, what's left of his army has been flanked and is trapped between the East River and the advancing British forces. As the sun sets on the second day of battle, Washington has no hope other than escape. If they captured him, they would have carried him back to England, they would have tried him, they would have hung him, they would have quartered him, and they put his head on a spit that had been there for years. And that's all you would remember about George Washington. Washington sets in motion an audacious retreat. His plan employs a revolving fleet of rowboats to ferry thousands of troops across the mile-wide East River to Manhattan. Here's Douglas Braeburn, president and CEO of Mount Vernon. This is an extraordinary challenge. How do you move an army across the river in the middle of the night under the threat of British guns the entire time? Everything has to work. The weather has to be right. The fog has to come in at the right time. The river currents have to be right. He's got to muffle all the wheels. He's got to keep the men quiet. You've got to pack up silently and move out. Washington decides if he can't overpower the British, he must outwit them. They manage to fool the British by creating an impression that they have not evacuated from their encampment. Washington keeps the campfires burning along the edges of his perimeter. He orders troops from time to time to fire off their muskets. All the while, small numbers of boats are rowing back and forth. Washington was an unconventional commander. He enjoyed the sneaky parts of war, of surprising the enemy, convincing the enemy you were going to do one thing when you were actually doing the other. And as the last man steps on board the boat, Washington can hardly believe his luck. The British haven't detected what's happening. He's made his escape. It's one of the most brilliant withdrawals in the history of warfare. It wasn't so much running away in fear as it was surviving to fight another day. So I think he really was using retreat as a strategy. I kind of think of this as the American Dunkirk. It's this moment where you save the army to fight again. And it really is one of Washington's great tactical victories early on in the war. But Washington's army has escaped one island to a precarious position on another. As his troops eventually make their way north along the island of Manhattan, 13,000 British soldiers overwhelm the men guarding Washington's retreat. The colonial soldiers flee in panic. When Washington gets word, he turns his men around and heads toward the battle. Washington thinks that if somebody decides to attack, it's like a challenge to duel. You cannot say no. 
You cannot say, I don't want to do that without losing honor. Washington saw his worst nightmare being enacted in front of him. His men fleeing. There's not even a sign of resistance. Washington's reaction, he loses his temper. In his book, 1776, David McCullough describes the scene. Washington brandishes a cocked pistol and draws his sword, threatening to run his men through. He shouts, take the walls, take the cornfield. When no one obeys, he throws his hat to the ground, exclaiming in disgust, are these the men with which I am to defend America? Washington has lost control of his men. He's lost control of himself. Arthur John Avalon says this was not the first time. He had a volcanic temper and worked mightily to constrain it. It would occasionally come out, and by all accounts, it was a terrible thing to be on the receiving end of. Gilbert Stewart, the painter, said, if you looked at George Washington's eyes, you realize that he could have been the fiercest savage in the forest. Within weeks, the British will take New York City. The loss of New York was catastrophic. This is rock bottom for Washington. This is rock bottom for the country. This rebellion is threatening to turn into a total defeat for the Americans. After losing New York to the British, George Washington and the Continental Army are on the run. Washington writes to his brother, John Augustine Washington. I am wearied almost to death with the retrograde motions of things. It is impossible to conduct battles agreeably to public expectation, or even those who employ me, as they will not make proper allowances for the difficulties their own errors have occasioned. After the New York campaign, Washington fell into a pretty deep depression. He was deeply insecure that this was going to work and that he was going to be able to win. Washington basically said, I would quit if I could, but people say there's no one to take my place. So we know Washington was at rock bottom. Did he really have it to continue on? Drained of all optimism, Washington writes home to Mount Vernon with instructions. And a warning. I say in confidence to you that I would look forward to unfavorable events and prepare accordingly in such a manner as to give no alarm or suspicion to anyone. Have my papers in such a situation as to remove at a short notice in case an enemy's fleet should come up the river. Almost everyone is in despair. The morale of the soldiers was pretty bad. The morale of the civilian population, even worse. They're trying to figure out, how can I get myself out of harm's way? How can I surrender to the British? General Howe offers a pardon to any patriot who will abandon the cause and swear allegiance to the king. A thousand people signed a petition repudiating the Declaration of Independence, including one guy that was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So you could see the will of the American public beginning to break here. Washington was also beginning to lose his army. Uh, his army was evaporating around him. And it's about half of the size of what it had been in the summer. So many men have either been captured or they have just left to go home. 
This was the ultimate humiliation, his army abandoning him. Tricky thing about a citizen army is that these soldiers, these continental soldiers, some of them signed on for a limited term. I will be here for a year, maybe two. And then my term will be up and I'll go home and go back to my farm. By December, Washington's army is just weeks away from total collapse. At midnight on New Year's Day, enlistments for nearly all of his roughly 6,000 remaining soldiers will expire. Washington believes General Howell is waiting until then to make his move. He complains to Major General Horatio Gates about their desperate situation. We have been pushed through the Jerseys. General Howe is now on the other side of the Delaware, and beyond all question, means, if possible, to possess himself of Philadelphia. You know the fatal consequences that must attend its loss. As the British began to move in December 1776 toward the Delaware River, he knows he's going to need to find some way to convince these few thousand troops that he has left to stay in the field. But words are not going to be enough to make that happen. If we can do something that's very visible and very symbolic, we might change the mood of the people and we might find young men returning to our ranks. But time is short. General Howe now commands an outpost in Trenton, New Jersey about 20 miles from Washington's eastern Pennsylvania headquarters. Howe's garrison is manned by some 1,500 Hessian mercenaries. The Hessians were professional soldiers from Germany that the British government had hired to augment their army. They were pros. They were some of the most feared warriors on Earth. Washington conceives a daring plan. He will attempt a nighttime crossing of the Delaware. The army is to move in three columns. The first is a diversion. The second will block the enemy's escape route. The third, under Washington's command, will march on Trenton. He wasn't ready to surrender the cause at that point. It might have been the rational thing to do, but history is made by people occasionally making irrational decisions in the pressure and amid the perils of a given moment. Washington writes to his aide de Ducamp, Colonel Joseph Reed. Christmas Day at night, one hour before day is the time fixed upon for our attempt on Trenton. For heaven's sake, keep this to yourself, as the discovery of it may prove fatal to us. If Washington's daring mission fails, this could be the last night of the revolution. You really have two choices. You either proceed or the entire enterprise collapses. The weather is the worst it can possibly be. It's a hurricane in December. The troops, they're still wearing their summer uniforms. Many of them are barefoot, literally barefoot. Their clothes in rags. A lot of the soldiers didn't actually know how to swim and the water was incredibly cold. This is a nation, this is a people, at their worst possible point, pushing on in the desperate hope that they can turn this thing around. To rally his men for the treacherous crossing, Washington orders his officers to read aloud the revolutionary tract by Thomas Paine, which had been published just days before. He senses Paine's words are more inspiring than his own. 
Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Once they get across the river, the clock is ticking. Washington has coordinated an effort where this will all happen at dawn, but they're late. Washington's forces land in New Jersey at 3 a.m., hours behind schedule. Now they must march the nine miles to Trenton. The plan is to divide into two columns, four miles outside of town, circle the fort, and barrage the enemy with cannon fire before they have time to react. Commanding a critical artillery unit is one of the country's rising stars, a young captain named Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton comes to the United States as an immigrant, functionally an orphan, attends King College. He is ambitious. In some ways, has a lot of similarities to a young Washington. What Hamilton wants from the war more than anything else is a moment to shine on the battlefield so he can earn reputation and honor. Washington soon learns that the two divisions of soldiers who were due to meet his regiment were stopped in their tracks by the brutal conditions. He and his 2,400 men must attack on their own. If they do not win this battle, it's over. So he rallies his men for one last toss of the dice. The stakes are unimaginably high. The snow is coming down, the wind is whipping. They're freezing, but they have nothing else left. They will either prevail or they will die. George Washington arrives on the outskirts of Trenton just before dawn. He divides his troops, sending one half under Major General Nathaniel Greene to attack from the north. The other, under Major General John Sullivan, will go in from the west to prevent a possible retreat. Trenton's commander, Colonel Johann Rall, is taken completely by surprise. Somewhat to their amazement, the Continental Army easily takes the garrison. Rawl is mortally wounded in the battle. He formally surrenders to Washington and dies. In less than an hour, 22 enemy soldiers have been killed. Some 900 are taken prisoner. Not a single American is lost in the fight. Washington's daring gambit has paid off. His crossing of the Delaware is his first great battlefield victory of the revolution. The tide has turned. Washington's general orders to the army, December 27, 1776. The general, with the utmost sincerity and affection, thanks the officers and soldiers for their spirited and gallant behavior at Trenton yesterday. The commissary is strictly ordered to provide rum to the troops that it may be served as occasion shall require. Trenton was like turning the page. He had made his mistakes in the past, but now this was a whole new game. With Washington crossing the Delaware, the history of the world was one way before that, and it turned out to be another way after that. Washington's decision to do that on that cold night 
has warmed the rest of us ever since. But he's got a shrinking army, and most of his soldiers will be going home at the end of the year. As we have begun the glorious work of driving the enemy, I hope you will not now turn your backs upon them and leave the business half-finished at this important crisis. A crisis which may more than probably determine the fate of America. People join armies and they stay in armies for a variety of reasons. In the case of Washington, he presents the cause as the cause of freedom. Washington knew that you have to give any group of human beings that you want to lead effectively a sense of purpose. Why are we doing this? Why am I putting my life on the line? My mission is to close with and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver. But the purpose of doing this is to protect the United States of America. I therefore not only invite you to a longer continuance, but earnestly exhort the officers and soldiers of these regiments, whose term of service is due to expire in a few days, to remain. He doesn't force them to stay. He doesn't order them to stay. He pleads with their sense of loyalty and duty, and he asks them to stay. Many of them will re-enlist, because now there's some hope. And they'll be able to recruit new soldiers, because there seems like this is actually something worth fighting for, and hope keeps an army going. The greatness of Washington's victory at Trenton wasn't so much in what happened on the battlefield, but the huge impact that it has on the feelings of the American people. Word of mouth would have traveled to people about what had happened, and it would buoy people's spirits and make people think that it was possible that the country could actually pull this off. Trenton changed everything, and we owe it to Washington's audacity. The British are frustrated at this point. Certainly Howe is, is frustrated. He had hoped that this thing would be over by now, that the American army would just kind of drift away and the revolution would die a peaceful death. In response to Washington's surprise victory, the British turned their military might toward taking control of the Hudson River. In July, they captured the key American post at Fort Ticonderoga, forcing the Northern Army into retreat. The Continental Army was a complicated beast. Washington had his own army he was in charge of, but there was also the Northern Army and the Southern Army. Washington sends reinforcements north to protect the Hudson. He then spends the summer of 1777 marching his own army between Philadelphia and New York in an effort to protect both. Colonel Kevin J. Weddle says Washington's view of the complex forces in play speak to his skill as a commander. Washington is a true commander-in-chief. He's not just looking at what's good for me down here with my main army. He's giving strategic and operational guidance to the commanders up in the Northern Army while he's fighting his own fight down in New York, New Jersey, and, and Pennsylvania. By August, the British are poised to strike Albany, a major strategic outpost on the Lower Hudson. As for General Howe, his fleet has departed New York Harbor. Destination unknown. Howe is no longer underestimating Washington. Washington is the revolution at this point, and if he can defeat and perhaps even destroy Washington, that's the revolution right there. Not long after, General Howe delivers on his promise to come for Washington. He defeats the Continental Army in battle just outside of Philadelphia. America's capital is now at risk. Philadelphia is a great prize. It's the rebel capital, a lot of propaganda value. The British think in a very 
traditional military kind of a way, we need to capture a major city. They captured New York, that doesn't fix things. If we take the city where Congress is sitting, maybe that will be so emotionally crippling that they will surrender. This is one of the big crises in Washington's entire time as Commander-in-Chief. John Adams, a congressman at that time, writes, Howe is about 15 miles from us. The prospect is chilling on every side. Is Philadelphia to be lost? If lost, is the cause lost? Within days, all of Congress, Adams included, are evacuating the city. Patriots hide the Liberty Bell in a church 60 miles away to keep the British from melting it down into musket balls. Washington had been on a losing streak. He had had an absolutely terrible year in New York. He had redeemed himself a little bit with the Battle of Trenton, but then had lost Philadelphia. With so much uncertainty and so many failures come doubts. There begins to be kind of a whisper campaign. Should Washington be in command of the army? Arnold was one of Washington's best officers. He was brilliant on the battlefield. Gates is very careful not to put himself on paper as saying, I want to take charge. But he speaks with Washington's opponents and he encourages them to begin lobbying for Washington's deposition. He can win this war if he can keep his army together. Valley Forge was all about preventing his soldiers from saying, I quit. Many another person in Washington's position would have said, I can't do this. That's next time on Making Washington. Making Washington is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Daniel Turek edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Michael Miller. Washington was originally produced by Rail Splitter Pictures for the History Channel. <laughs>